0: Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Ambition Podcast. I'm David Woods-Hale, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber and BGA. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Phelan, Head of Global Happiness at the Happiness Index. Last year, Matt wrote a new book called Freedom to be Happy, The Business Case for Happiness. And we're going to talk a little bit about that during today's call. But I also wanted to find out what the psychological and philosophical aspects of happiness really are and how it can make a difference to one's own self-worth, organizations, business, and society in general. Well, hi, Matt. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today for the podcast. Uh, We're here to talk about your new book, Freedom to be Happy. But before we do that, I thought it might be quite useful for the listeners if you could perhaps talk a little bit about your own background, your career journey, and, and really how you got to where you are now. Yeah, thanks, David. Thanks for having us on. Um, Really excited to be here. I think my background's
1: a bit weird (laughs) because I started—I before I started working with human beings, I worked with animals on a farm, Um, and I've kind of always been obsessed with how animals can communicate non-verbally. And I also have a theory that animals are better at communicating than human beings. Um, And the example I will give you is is quite often people pass each other in an office and they ask how each other are, but they don't even wait for the answer. Uh, so anyone is listening that's got like dogs or cats, like dogs and cats are just brilliant at communicating how they feel. If they're hungry, if they're sad, you know how they feel. And um, so my career um, moved, moved from a farm into the data side of marketing um, where I built up a global marketing agency. Um, but we built that marketing agency on happiness. Um, and I became obsessed with that. And um, and now that's my day-to-day job of of working um, and co-founder of the Happiness Index. So every single day I'm looking at um, happiness data, which is can be happy,
0: but also sad, which we might touch on in a bit, David. Okay. So as I mentioned at the start of the interview, we're here to talk about your new book, Freedom to be Happy, The Business Case for Happiness. I guess your job explains a lot of this but really sort of you know from a personal perspective what prompted you to write the book? Um, uh, And I I alluded to in the last question David but I just and I I will cheer people up as
1: this podcast goes on but I want to be um, realistic about the current situation so in our data which is millions and millions of data points last month was the lowest point of happiness that that we have seen in our database Um, so what but that, but that doesn't mean it's the end of the world. There's lots of companies that have got happy employees, but because of my made up job title, which I will encourage everyone to do, just make your job title up, um, you can do that. Um, head of Global Happiness, my inbox is full of people messaging me saying, I am having a really tough time at work. I don't like my job. Um, I've, I, I've done this, I've done that, but I'm unhappy. Um, And these people want to change their workplaces, but they feel like they lose the argument because they feel their argument is fluffy. So they might go to the CEO and say, I think we should do more for the people here or or, or whatever. Um, So that's why I wrote the book, because I wanted to arm everyone with the science on why it makes good business sense to have a happy workforce. I think ethically, people should believe that anyway. Like, I, I just don't think you should be in a leadership position if you don't look after your people. But... If you don't, um, if someone tries to argue back with you, you need to be armed with the data and the science and the stories. So that was kind of my my personal reason is that the happiness index works with companies, so I help companies, but I can't really help individuals um but by the way that our model works so i thought you know what i'm going to get all this data out there to arm people and, and and help them does that answer your question
0: david absolutely it does and i think you know i've done a bit of research into happiness in my career as well and looked at this from sort of employee engagement and connecting that to happiness and i know that a lot of experts who who talk about happiness would say well it's not it's not just waking up in the morning and thinking i'm in a good mood today there's sort of a, a bigger um I suppose, exponential feeling of happiness, that it is possible to be happy all the time. Um, Whether or not you're actually feeling happy at that particular moment, if that makes sense. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's realistic to expect to be fundamentally happy all the time? So I would say if someone was fundamentally all the time, um, that there
1: is a, a psychological problem with them. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, would, I would go as uh, saying that and um, in not not in a bad way and um, just in the way that feeling sad all the time um, would uh, if you if you're in a state of depression you need to seek medical help um, and, and that's not what my book is about but um, it's also not normal to be happy all the time which is part of the problem because Disney teaches us that we should be happy all the time um, and I think where I wanted to go with the book is to show people that all emotions are necessary, but in the workplace, we've we've blocked out emotions. So sadness, anger, happiness, all these emotions that you feel, envy, um, we shouldn't see them as good or bad. So we shouldn't see high happiness as good and low happiness as bad. And um, the actions off the back of it can be bad. So if you're angry at work, and then you get a baseball bat out and smash up all the laptops, I would probably say that in most countries, that's illegal, and you shouldn't be doing that. Um, but to feel angry is is just a response of your body. So I would be saying in that scenario, you need to think to yourself, why am I feeling angry in this situation? What can I do about it? What can I change? So I think what, what I, I'm a geek, David. So the way I look at it is I see all my emotions as data points. So if I feel sad or I feel happy, I just question myself and say, why am I, why am I feeling like that? Why does this person make me feel threatened? Or why do I feel happy when I'm in this person's um, company? So <laughs> I put that point out there because I think sometimes when people hear my job title or what I do, they think it's about being happy all the time. So I just I think your question was an incredibly important one.
0: I mean, I, I love the, the point that you made about the, the being a geek and the, and the data. And that brings me quite nicely to my next question. I'm fascinated by the happiness index. How do you really, I suppose, tangibly measure what happiness is on a you know, data and analytics scale? How does, how does that really work in practice? So I think you, you said earlier, David, that you've, you've got some experience in employee engagement.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so if you go back to the original definition of employee engagement by William Kahn um, in 1990, Um, One third of the three words that we used um, to define employee engagement, um, one of those words was emotions. Um, But if you move forward into the 90s and and, and, and on, emotions and happiness suddenly just start to disappear from employee engagement. And and the reason I think that is, and I'm going in a roundabout way to answer your question here because I want to give some context, is that... Because we couldn't. Once you get above... David, are you aware of the Dunbar number? Yes. Yeah. So I'll explain to your listeners that, that, that don't know. So the Dunbar number is... Um, somewhere between 100 and 150. And it talks about the amount of relationships that we can maintain as human beings. And above that, we struggle. So it, at the center, you'll have five or six like really close relationships. And then you'll have seven or eight external, like next level out. And, that, and that's why as your life goes on, sometimes you sadly lose touch with people because we can't, as human beings, we, we just don't have the capacity to, um, to handle too many relationships. So... If you're in a business below 100 people, um, it's kind of easier to understand how people are feeling. But if you're a CEO of like some of our clients that are hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of people, how is the CEO, are you going to know how people feel? Um, And I know um, I was listening to the, the intro to this podcast before this, David, I know you talk about artificial intelligence on here. So employee engagement is easier to measure. Than emotions. And I think that's why people have been measuring it. But now we have advances in machine learning, AI, and voice technology that allows us to understand how people feel. So I'm now going to finally answer your question, David. (laughs) I've set the context, which is we just ask people how they feel, right? Um, But how easy is that because what if like some of our clients your um your employees are tea pickers and they are illiterate and they can't read or write how do you you can't just drop them an email because they're not on email um and they wouldn't be able to write down how they feel so the simple answer which i could have just said right at the beginning is we ask people how they feel and and from that we combine qualitative and quantitative data so the qualitative the quantitative data is like how do you feel on a scale of 1 to 10 the qualitative is where the real rich data comes where we just ask people to explain why they gave how they their their score and from that that's where the AI crunches it and puts it into themes. So suddenly the CEO is going out to address the entire company of 10,000 people. And that CEO knows okay, this is how people are feeling at the moment. They're a bit worried about this thing they're happy about this thing. Um, and what I think that achieves is what I would, and our tech team would call emotional intelligence at scale beyond, beyond that Dunbar number. So David, I know I've gone around the houses on that one, but I wanted to give the, the, the context. Is that, Has that been useful?
0: Yeah, that absolutely answers the question. And I I would like to, I would like to stay with that point actually, because I'd like to connect it a little bit the, the idea of happiness with the idea of employee engagement. Now, yeah. um, as I mentioned in my background, I was a, I was an HR journalist for, for many years and have written quite a lot about the, the connection between being happy and being engaged. Yeah. And a blocker that I always used to come up with from commentators um was around the idea of happiness being connected to engagement so for instance a person could go into a workplace they could be chatting to their colleagues they could be having a lovely time they could be really friendly and and happy and everyone likes them and they're popular but Mm -hmm. they're not productive they're not engaged with the the organizational the organization's values in that respect you know that there is the sort of i suppose the difficult conversation of disconnecting happiness to engagement. And I'd be really interested to find out what your thoughts on that are. So, you know, some new school academics would sort of say that engagement is a fluffy metric. We we don't care so much about that. We just want people to be productive. That's what they come to work for. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that and that's my belief, but it is an argument that's out there in the marketplace. And I'd just be interested to find your thoughts. And it's an argument that is that is put to me every single day. Um, <laughs> even yesterday, someone said
1: to me they didn't want to set a precedent for happiness. <laughs> Which, when you know the science and data behind it, is probably it's like saying I don't want to set the precedents for high profits. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> or good turnover. But I understand why people feel like that. Um, and a, a question for you, David: are you, are you a Star Wars fan? I am. So there's a great quote in Star Wars that um, only Sith Lords uh, believe in absolutes. Um, are you aware of that? Are you aware of that quote, David? I am indeed, yes. it's. It, I think it's just the best thing in life because we're, we're in a world at the moment, um, a really polarised world where like, you can't even be friends with someone that's got different political views than you. Um, so we've, we've entered this really polarised world and, and, and we do it in everything, don't we? And... And even in happiness engagement, we have this scenario where some people are like, well, it's engagement. Some people are like, it's happiness. Whereas what the data actually shows us. So, again, just some context for everyone. It's apps, maybe 10 years ago, this was up for debate, but happier employees are more productive, um, achieve more sales, um, share companies with higher um Happiness levels, uh, on on average, um, share price um, increases in a year by times three, their competitors where they're unhappy. So there's no debate around the bit around whether this is a good thing to do anymore. But what we found is... Um, by isolating happiness and engagement, rather than ignoring happiness, now that we've we've got the richer data, is that and and um, how um, on a scale of one to ten, David, how how much do you like a bad analogy? Because I'm about to use a really bad analogy. Oh, we adore analogies. <laughs> okay, good. Well, you're going to get the worst one that maybe of all your guests have ever used. So, the way that I see it is, if we use a car um, as the analogy, the the employee engagement um is 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 the sat nav and the structure of the car. So it's it's the direction and where we're going. Um, the happiness is is the fuel and the energy that gets us there. Um, and I think this has a real a real importance for your listeners actually um on on leadership. Because this is why I believe there are leaders That can get teams to deliver things that lots of people think are impossible. Because if you have that energy behind, if you had two leaders, right, and they both had the same goal, but this was a really difficult goal, the one that can really energize people around things like happiness, emotions, and purpose, and and let's say everything else was the same, they had the same resources, they had the same. uh, funding and all that kind of stuff. The one that's got that real energy from happiness and human emotions, our data would say has got has got that chance of getting people to believe that they can achieve it and then achieve it. Yeah. Um, and this is why I think there's a lot of well-resourced companies that never achieve their goals. And you look at it, don't you? You think how can that how can that huge company just be just be outflanked by that smaller, nimbler startup? Um, and I believe it's it's off. I mean, look at the Ford companies at the moment. I, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that I'm a big fan of Elon Musk. Um, I don't think that you should be going out um, on Twitter, ab- abusing um, people because they've got different views for you, like like you did with that diver um, where they were trying to rescue those um, kids that were stuck underground. But you can't deny that Elon Musk has the ability to energize people. And. Um, And when you look at it on paper, there's no way that Tesla should be outperforming companies like Ford. Uh, The resources available to them and their market leadership just shouldn't happen. But I think people like Elon Musk and and, and the entrepreneurs that we hear of managed to tap in and and fuel those companies with with all those elements that we've
0: been talking about, David. Yeah, I I totally hear that. I totally appreciate where you're coming from. If we move away a little bit from I, I suppose happiness within an organisation, and and bring it back to happiness within the self and, and someone's self worth. I'm quite interested to sort of find out your your definition. I suppose in the, in the most rudimentary terms of what happiness is. So all our listeners are um, business students or graduates or academics. They're they're very familiar with ideas such as Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you know yeah. engagement metrics and Belbin scales and and working out what what motivates and engages people. Yeah. But I mean, what we're finding in our own research, certainly from MBA graduates, is they are much more motivated by the idea of making an impact and making a difference in the world rather yeah. than financial gain, for example. that That's something that yeah. I personally think is really encouraging and really exciting about the new breed of MBA. But yeah. I'm interested from, from your perspective, what is it that, that you find that makes people happy? You, you've talked about, you know, achieving the impossible, but is it money? Is it success? Is it self-actualization? Is it is there a difference i suppose between being um happy content ambitious and engaged
1: <laughs> yeah no it's, it's it's such a good question and such a difficult one to ask it, ask but that's why i love it and i'm going to give it a crack first off i'm going to i'm going to take us back to 551 bc so we're going a long way back here <laughs> and i think um, but before I do, I think the Maslow hierarchy of needs model is a good one to frame happiness in as well, because we know um, that the, to the question, does does money make you happy? The answer, the unfortunate answer is yes. Um, but there's a but with it, which is effectively, I'm going to oversimplify it. Effectively, if you live in a second or third world country, money will buy you happiness because you will be getting things like cleaner water um a better like and actually somewhere to live that's got um that's got heating and and you can feed yourself okay um which obviously has has maslow hierarchy needs elements to it um but at a certain point which changes in every country that job promotion where you get more money all it really does is buy you a better logo on your car or a slightly bigger flat um and that's the problem is that that. We chase it at the beginning, but we keep chasing it when actually we need to change strategy to something else. Yeah. Um, So, the reason I'm taking this back to 551 BC is Confucius. Um, And if we go back to Confucius and then we go all the way forward um, to people like Aristotle and the Stoics and Freud, and then we go right up to now, lots of your students uh, might be aware of like the positive psychology experts, like people like Carol Dweck, Barbara Fredrickson, Ed Diner, Christopher Peterson, I, I could go on. They, they talk about happiness in, with different definitions and different names and different complicated theories, right? But if you really boil it down, and obviously they, 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 these are great people, but I believe they're, they're all really describing the same type of happiness and um, with different elements. So the one that we opened with where I, and I'm gonna break it down to kind of four elements, which is the one that most people mistake all of happiness for is mood. So people think, right, I'm in a bad mood. That means that's all happiness is. It's like you, you're, you're either happy or you're not happy. It's like the binary part of it. So that's what we call mood. And that's why I said, like, the only people that are never going to experience unhappiness or happiness or flow of emotions are either dead people or robots. Mm-hmm. Like that's the reality of it. And, and, and I think that's where Disney and people like that have a, a, a lot to answer on this, which is it is normal to feel sad in a normal day. Like your mood will shift in a day. Um, and, and I think once you realize that, it's actually quite powerful. Because now when I feel sad, I'm just like, oh, good, I'm alive. Do you know what? I'm alive. (laughs) And um, rather than trying to do an overly big deep dive into why I feel like that, even though, as I said earlier, it's useful to try and understand why you feel the way that you do. The second bit, which you touched on, David, is around purpose. Purpose is a a huge part of happiness. And in the UK, I imagine we've got some international listeners, but we have the National Health Service. So if you do get ill, you can just go to hospital. We take we take that for granted and you don't have to pay for it um, directly. So if you work in the NHS now, you feel a real sense of purpose and that, and that, and that was a, the nhs is another example of a really under-resourced organisation that punches well above its weight it gets so much criticism but think about how many lives it saves every single day um, so there's those two elements the third element um, which often gets described as flow um, and that's when you're just you know you're just in a good state in your life when you're in flow everything feels good quite often it's easier to identify when you're not in flow you can think of a team that just didn't work. If we've got people on MBAs here that are working on joint projects, and the, the team's just not gelling, they're working on everyone's been in that situation. That's flow. And the fourth element, um, which gets just it's not reported on enough um, and comes out in the book, which is in our data, the number one thing that that, that makes employees happy is relationships at work. And um, so we've got the, the fourth element of it. So I think by breaking happiness down into those four bits, mood, uh, purpose, flow and relationships, I think you can start to understand it in a more detailed way. But I think people get too too caught up in trying to label everything within happiness rather than my advice is just to
0: sit with it and experience it um, because it is a global emotion. Does that help, David? Absolutely. Yeah, that absolutely answers my question. I think that I really like the fact you're bringing in the, the sort of academic and theoretical perspectives here and connecting that to the data. Because, you know, having reflected on it, you know, to my earlier question where I asked about the sort of connection between or the disconnect, I suppose, between happiness and engagement or productivity, one has to question if somebody's coming into a workplace and they're happy there must be a correlation between the success that they're bringing to the organization and their personal feeling of i suppose self actualization returning to maslow so that that's that that makes a lot of sense to me now i think you know at the start of the conversation we talked about your index demonstrated that in the month of november 2020 happiness w- was low and i think there's a lot of work to be done over yeah. the next you know year 18 months to get ha- global happiness levels back to where they were pre-COVID-19 yeah. and I think obviously that's what's had a huge impact we've been in lockdown we've been in quarantines we can't do what we want it's it's impacted our, our freedoms and, and the way that we live um but there is is cause for optimism just now and it's looking likely that you know by this time next year you know we'll be moving out of the the sort of COVID period and moving forward yeah. so I want to sort of connect this back to I suppose policymakers and um some of the work that i did back in i think earlier in this decade sort of 2010 2011 was around um some of the work that the former pm in the uk david cameron had done around uh, an international uk um happiness index who's so sort of talking about what happiness means across society and that's sort of gone away for me but would you would you say that there's a need for that that piece of work to be brought back to, to really measure happiness across societies what what makes people happy what what makes them feel content and and um, supported, I suppose. Um, and, and is that a rule for regulators and, and governments, as opposed to employers and the individual? I think you you make a really good point, David. And I, I I don't know why, but that
1: particular period of time is really, really, it really is in my mind as well. I think it was because I was starting my first business then, and mm. I don't not only where was happiness high on the agenda, but before that recession. Um, so, so was so was the green conversation. Like even the Tories, they they changed their logo, didn't they? It was the torch, and then suddenly it was like the tree. The tree. Yeah, and then there's I think I don't know if it's in it's in someone's autobiography, isn't there? When the recession hits, that David Cameron says to someone, "Well, let's let's just get rid of all that stuff." <laughs> it's like, geez, but I think I think the fundamental nub of this for me um, is short term and long term thinking. Because if you look at any of the data, any of the indices across all of this, is a happier country um, is going to be better for everyone, right? Because less people are going to go into the NHS. um, There's going to be less mental health issues. We're we're actually going to be financially better off. Um, But like the environment... These are long-term things, aren't they? That that maybe really come into fruition when you're not in power anymore. Um, so, and I think what Black Lives Matters movement has done has really focused people on where there's like actual problems with the structure and the way that we structure stuff. Because I think we have I think we have five-year fixed par- parliaments now, don't we? Yeah. Um, so, so much stuff is just focused on the short term. So I'm not I'm not letting the politicians off on this um, because the data makes it complete. It just makes complete sense that, that we should be doing this. And, and I will give the UK one um, bit of credit here, which is the Danes um, who lead happiness on a lot of things um, are actually envious on, on on the UK on one point on happiness, <laughs> which is the Office of National Statistics here actually does um, record happiness so we're actually a bit further down the road um, than, than Denmark, which uh, which is a leader on on this area. So I think it needs to come back in, but I think this is um, where and and I think academia, uh, storytellers, and, and business people need to come together because you know we talk about a lot about how um, and I'm sure this comes up in your MBA stuff that we've moved into this sort of post-truth world. Yeah. And, People don't believe in academics anymore. And, and it's almost like a bad thing if you've gone to Oxbridge um, in, in some circles. Um, but I think everyone needs to take responsibility for this world that we've created. And, and the reason I say that, and, and, and as someone who does research and has lots of data, I think we need to stop presenting data as fact. Um, and I know this is gonna sound crazy, but the problem is when you present data as fact, it you can have you heard the saying lies damn lies and statistics. Absolutely, yeah. So in my mind, data is only true in, in that moment of time, right? It was just fact at that point. Um and, it, and then as you look at like when you go to like Schrodinger's cat and like quantum mechanics and stuff like that, you start to get into that conversation around like, does an experiment change when someone observes it? And the reason I think this is important, let's pick on let's pick on alcohol for a second, right? people get really confused, don't they? Because in the one day you read that red wine is good for you, and then the next day you read it's bad for you. Mm-hmm. So the reason I think that comes out is we all try and present our research and data as fact. Um, but I think what we need to do is present it more of um, giving us more enlightenment on what's going on um, and, 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 and accept that there is so much more for us to uncover. So... The, the, I know I'm, the, oh, it's a quite long answer to this question, but I think um, I think the government and everyone needs to come together on this because we can't just blame, we can't just go, oh, these, just, these people just don't believe in truth and fact anymore. I think we need to like, really understand, like, even if you look at like, really well-known academics like Einstein and, and anyone, the ones that are really well-known were really good storytellers. Um, and I just wanna, one thing that I noticed from researching the book, because I, I, I've, I sought out lots of academics and lots of professors. And one thing I found about lots of professors and lots of people with MBAs and academics is they, they are not encouraged to share their work um, by lots of people in their, own, um, in their own field. It's almost like this research, like some of the research I've uncovered has been around for 10, 15 years and mm-hmm. everyone should know about it. It should be taught in schools. Um, but it's not. Um, so I think there needs to be some um, some kind of way that we bring people together on these kinds of things. And it, and it fits into that world of, again, of like separating people out and this like um, world where you've got academics on one side and then like um, Trump supporters on the other. And it's like, we're all human beings at the end of the day. Um, and I, I, I think academia, business, uh, politics and think need to come closer. So, so do you, to answer your question, yes, gross national happiness and so on should be taken serious. But I think we need to ask the question, why is it not, and
0: try and fix some of those systemic problems that we have. Absolutely, that does answer my question. And I think you've raised a really interesting point around the, almost the cyclical nature of how happiness is perceived, if that makes sense. So you're right, back in sort of after, after the financial crash of 2018, 2008 um 2010 2011 2012 people were talking about happiness and now we're having this international crisis again with covid people again are talking about happiness just to finish the interview um i'd be quite interested to find out from yourself what your next steps are i suppose to perhaps turning the tide in this cyclical um observation of happiness and 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 sort of really bringing it to the forefront going forward what are your hopes for your book and, and for your work going forward So,
1: David, all I ever want the book to be is a catalyst for people to become interested in this subject, right? And the reason I accepted to come on your podcast is because you have an incredibly powerful audience of of, of MBAs and academics that I hope will listen to this podcast and be like, do you know what? That's an area that needs more help, more research, more people getting excited about it, because we are we are still really early days in all this stuff. So I've created something called the Happiness and Humans Community. If you go on the um, Happiness Index website, which is uh, thehappinessindex.com. Just scroll through a couple of pages, and you'll find the happiness in, in the, uh, the happiness and humans community, which is a Slack group. And then in there, I'm just encouraging people from all around the world. Um, so we had a load of people. I did the book tour in India the other day. We've got Germany coming up. I'm trying to get as many people around the world that are interested in this subject to come together um, and start helping each other and working on it. Because one of the things that that if you read the book, you'll find out that um, makes you happier is giving. <laughs> And I think if you if you are privileged enough um, to be the type of person that that can do an MBA, um, I think this is an incredibly um, important area. And I would love you um, to have listened to this podcast and, and want to get involved. Um, and even if it's just to come on and share a bit of research every now and then, or or it's just to read the stuff and share it. Um, so the book I hope is a catalyst for lots of people to come together in the happiness and humans community and, and 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 move this
0: forward. me too absolutely and um yeah I, I would also encourage any of our listeners to to really sort of engage with this sort of movement because I think perhaps there's never been a more important time to to really talk openly and honestly about happiness, what it means to you and the difference it can make to to colleagues and wider societies so Absolutely. Matt, that's all we have time for. But thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to me today. I, I found it really interesting and insightful. And I think as well, there's lots of practical advice in there as well that people can, can take away and think about straight away. So thank you again for, for taking the time to, to talk to us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, David. Well, thanks once again to Matt for taking the time to talk to us today for the podcast. We talked about a lot of issues that are are really prevalent in in business at the moment. And I think a lot of these are really important to consider from happiness, self-actualization, self-worth, engagement, purpose. And you can find lots of articles around all these topics on the Ambition website at www.associationofmbas.com forward slash Ambition.